Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, we will talk about the details of a New York judge's decision indicting, or rather indicating, the Trump Organization committed fraud in its business transactions. Democrat rank and file members support their leadership in censoring free speech. An NFL legend makes a public commitment to Jesus Christ. And I will interview South Carolina Lifeline Children's Services Pregnancy Counselor Catherine Barnhill. This is Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. If you are listening live this morning on Facebook, thanks. Appreciate you joining us. Don't forget to uh, share us, like us, do all the things that uh, might cause some other people to also like the program. And, of course, the podcast will be available about uh, 35, 40 minutes after the show is over. Get it uploaded, and you can listen to it at your leisure. Like the best best things in life, of course. It's uh, free. So... Uh, hope you'll do that. If you do enjoy the podcast, be, podcast, be sure to give me a good review um, because that may help some other people uh, decide they like the podcast too. If you enjoy the information that you get here, um, hopefully others would as well. All right, short minute today to talk about baseball, and I, I, I promise it's short, but I, I need to talk about Brooks Robinson's passing, but I, I wanted to just mention, since I'm going to talk about baseball, that the Braves had a big comeback win over the Cubs last night. And that really uh, – the Cubs are trying to get the third playoff spot in uh, in the National League, and they're in, in the National League Central Division. And the loss last night means they have no chance to win the division. Milwaukee Brewers are going to be the winners of the um, National League Central Division. Uh, the Braves are going to be in Milwaukee, I believe, for their last three games. They've got two more games at home with the Cubs, so five games to go. And their magic number is one. If they win one of those five games after their win last night, they're going to have home field advantage throughout the playoffs and um, uh, into the World Series. And that, Well, the World Series was, I, I guess, determined by the All-Star game. But if, and anyway, um, no, good win last night for the Braves. Um, and they got two more games, two more opportunities, well, five more games, one out of five, and they get home field advantage, and that's a big deal. All right, let me talk about Brooks, Brooks Robinson for just a minute because uh, if, if, you, if you love baseball, you have to pay homage to Brooks Robinson. He passed away yesterday at 86, and just a couple of paragraphs from the Washington Post today will suffice. Brooks Robinson, the Hall of Fame Baltimore Oreos third baseman who helped lead his team to two World Series championships and is widely regarded as the baseball's greatest defensive third baseman ever, uh, died yesterday. He was 86. And, of course, he was known as the vacuum cleaner, the human vacuum cleaner, because any ball that got close to him, he was going to get it. During a 23-year career in Baltimore, Mr. Robinson was an 18-time All-Star 18 out of 23 years. Amazing. He won the Golden Glove Award as the top fielder at his position 16 years in a row. 
That's, that's, that's crazy. His ability to grab up any ball hit in his direction earned him the nickname, the human vacuum cleaner, and he remained one of Baltimore's best-loved athletes long after his retirement. In 1977, he was named the American League's MVP in 1964 and was among the core of players, including fellow Hall of Famers Jim Palmer and Frank Robinson, which he's not related to Frank Robinson, who formed an Orioles dynasty for the next decade as the team reached the postseason six times and the World Series four times. And, of course, as he said, they uh, Brooks Robinson was part of two World Series victories in that stretch. All right, just, just a little bit of tribute to Brooks Robinson. What a great player. Um, so many great statistics. Baseball is, um, it, well, okay, I promised I was not going to go off <laughs> and talk a lot about baseball today because this is a, a, a culture and news and, and, and truth commentary. Um, so we need, we need to, I think, stick with that. All right, um, big story today coming out of New York is uh, a New York judge has ruled that Donald Trump committed fraud in valuing his assets Decision hands a partial victory to state attorney general ahead of the civil trial that's set to begin next week. Now, Letitia James, who is the attorney general of the state of New York, has been chasing Donald Trump. I mean, she ran on a platform of I'm going to get Trump, and she's followed up on that. I mean, she has gone after him about every way that she can, and this is a civil trial. Nobody's going to jail over this, but it's significant because it, the sanctions that could come out of the civil trial, uh, hefty fines, uh, the loss of, a, of uh, Trump's ability, the Trump business interest ability to do business in New York, I mean, that could be devastating because that's really, even though Trump lives in, at his club at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, um, his, the business dealings, the business empire is located primarily in New York, and a lot of his business is conducted there. And, of course, that's the home of Trump Tower. So uh, this could be significant, and it also gives – there's still going to be the civil trial. This judge's ruling simply is an indication that there, is, there was fraud. And this is a bench trial, and the judge said that the Trump organization committed fraud, that they overvalued their assets. Now, I want to talk about that for a minute because this, this is something, one of the arguments that has been raised in defense of the Trump organization is the everybody does it argument. And I'm not a big fan of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, just because everybody's doing it doesn't mean that you ought to do it too. Uh, that argument's been around a long time. I used it when I was a kid on my parents. Uh, it didn't do too well. Uh, it didn't get me out of any trouble. Uh, you know, the old adage, and I, I think my mom actually said this to me one time, well, if everybody was going to jump off a cliff, would you go jump too? I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. But in this case, there are business practices that many, many companies engage in that are not considered wholly ethical and that's, I'm not defending them, but I'm just saying that just like in, in every enterprise, whether it's right or wrong, there's a wink and a nod kind of a, a understanding that when you go to get a loan, you go to talk to investors, 
you go to present your company that you kind of lean on the numbers a little bit. In other words, you, you make the company maybe sound a little bit better than technically it would sound on paper or, or on paper than maybe it really is. Uh, and, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, you can value your assets and in many, many different ways. There's a lot of accounting tricks that you can use to value your at value your assets at more than perhaps a I don't want to say a reasonable person, but more than a person that just looks at it on the outside would say that that property or that business is worth. And so because a lot of companies do this, I mean, if, if Letitia James was going to prosecute this aggressively in the state of New York, uh, she literally would have to bring a, a lot more businesses, lawsuits against businesses if she was going to be consistent. But of course, of course, this has never been about consistency. It's been about finding any kind of method, any kind of tool to bring down Donald Trump and his business empire, to bring him down personally, to bring him down politically, to bring him down in any way because of the visceral hatred that there is for him on the left. And of course, anyone who's successful in doing that on the left, they immediately become a superstar among progressives. And so, so this is part of Letitia James' motivation here. And again, she's fulfilling a campaign promise. Vote me in. I'll go after Donald Trump. Um, and she's certainly done that. Here's what the Washington Post says about this today. A New York judge on Tuesday found Donald Trump and his family business committed fraud by making false and misleading valuations on much of his real estate empire and ordered the cancellation of legal certificates that have allowed the Trumps to do business in the state. Now, this, this is a club. That's, that's the haymaker. I mean, you know, you, a judge gets up and criticizes the valuations, says, oh, you overvalued some property. Uh, you know, that's landing a couple of punches as, as Trump turns his shoulder to him. But the haymaker is the judge saying, look, we're going we're gonna to cancel your legal certificates. We're going to make it to where you can't do business in New York. Uh, back to the article, the ruling handed a significant early victory to State Attorney General Letitia James, a Democrat, on part of her civil fraud case against Trump, which is set to go to trial next week. She sued the former president last year and has accused Trump in court filings of inflating his annual net worth by as much as $3.6 billion between 2011 and 2021 by falsely valuing his properties. Overvaluing real estate, including his flagship Manhattan building, the Trump Tower, his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida, and his golf courses, allowed Trump to obtain bank loans on more, on more favorable terms, James has alleged. She's seeking financial penalties of $250 million. Now, even to a billionaire, $250 million is not just chump change. That's not walking around money. That's going to take a big bite out of his business interest. Uh, the cancellation of the business, particularly when you step back and think about how much he's having to spend on lawyers, because he's not only in court with this civil case, he's in court with four criminal cases, one in Georgia, another one in New York, um, one in, in, and then, well, two counts in Florida. And so th this is a, and he's the leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president. 
and he's out campaigning. He's trying to maintain a presidential campaign while paying all these attorneys and facing the possibility of fines that could really hurt his business interests. Um, the cancellation of the business certificates also was a centerpiece request by the Attorney General's case, a remedy that could cripple the Trump Organization's ability to operate in New York. Now, here's, here's, this is what's interesting. Chris Keis, who is one of the lawyers for Trump, um, of course, came out and attacked the ruling. I mean, you can imagine he's, he's being paid by Trump to defend him. So he said the ruling was, quote, outrageous and disconnected from the facts and governing law. He went on to say the court disregarded the viewpoint of those actually involved in the loan transactions who testified that there was nothing misleading, there was no fraud, and the transactions were all highly profitable. Now, let's take those things one at a time because I, I want you to wrap your mind around this. You've got a judge that's ruling that, that the, the Trump organization overvalued property, properties and defrauded the banks by getting loans at favorable rates, uh, by lying to other businesses when they were thinking about mergers or partnerships, and yet the banks and these businesses are all saying, they testified, look, we don't think there was anything wrong here. We don't believe that, that anything happened that the Trump organization should be held accountable for. They testified that there was nothing misleading, that they understood what the valuations were, the method for how these properties were evaluated. There was no fraud, and the transactions were all highly profitable. In other words, Everybody made money. The banks made money. The businesses involved made money. Trump made money. The Trump organization prospered. And so no one was hurt. No one was, quote, defrauded or injured. And yet this lawsuit is going forward. And the judge in this case just ruled that, you know, that, that the fraud did take place, which it helps Letitia James. Now, she's got a bunch of other charges that she's bringing, but all of the underlying charges that she's bringing in the civil case or allegations in the civil case, I should say, because again, this is not criminal court, but all of these allegations are going to be sort of the foundation. They, they flow from the fraud decision by the judge. The fraud decision forms the foundation, and all of the allegations that Letitia James will start to bring next week, if this actually gets to trial next week, uh, this ruling could delay it. Uh, uh, the, uh, President Trump has sued Letitia, the, uh, either the judge or uh, Letitia James. I'll, I'll get to it here in a minute. Uh, anyway, he's got a lawsuit against those that are working against him in this case, and that may have to be settled before the case can go forward, but uh, it's supposed to go to trial on Monday and the, of next week, and this judge's ruling would go a long way in helping Letitia James's case. A spokeswoman for James said, today a judge ruled in favor, uh, in our favor, and found that Donald Trump and the Trump Organization engaged in years of financial fraud. We look forward to presenting the rest of our case at trial. It was Arthur Ingoron. He wrote at, is the judge. He wrote a 35-page opinion and said the Trumps have repeatedly relied on bogus arguments that ignore basic rules about how assets are valued. To the Trumps, rent-regulated apartments 
are worth the same as unregulated ones, and restricted land is worth the same as unrestricted property, the judge said. Now, obviously, this is up for debate. Uh, regulated apartments, no, normally, if they're under rent control, they're not going to be as valuable as an, an apartment building that isn't under rent control because of the amount of the profitability of those two uh, apartments is going to differ. If you can only charge X for rent and your expenses are Y and you can't raise rent to meet expenses, then that means that property is not as valuable as a piece of property where you can charge whatever you want for rent in order to meet the expenses and for it to be profitable. But the actual value of the property you know, if somebody else were to take that property, if they were to somehow be able to get the classification changed, then who's to say that that property wouldn't have the value that the Trump Organization put on it? Now, according to the judge, under the law, that's not the way it works. In, in order to get a loan or in order to enter into partnerships when you're using this property to estimate your net worth, you have to be accurate. You have to not what the property might do uh, or could do, but what the property's actually worth at the time that you're turning in your um, your assessment. Uh, Ingeron wrote that this is a fantasy world, not the real world. The judge said it was necessary to go ahead and cancel the Trump business certificates now because the defendants have continued to disseminate false and misleading information while um, conducting business, even as an independent monitor has been overseeing their actions. In addition to Trump, the judge found that two of his adult children, Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr., and two long-term Trump Organization employees were also liable for fraud. Eric Trump responded in a post on X. He said, we've run an exceptional company, never missed a loan payment, making banks hundreds of millions of dollars, developing some of the most iconic assets in the world, and yet today the persecution of our family continues. Now, that's what most people believe. Um, I, I, you know, Look, I don't have the details of this case. I've been reading about it over the last several years because Letitia James has been working on this um, ever since, well, before Trump became president of the United States. Uh, or at least the state of New York has been working on it and compiling evidence and accusing Trump of overvaluing property. And just as I said in the opening, this may be the case. I mean, it, I, I, w without seeing all the documents, without sitting in the courtroom, um, I, I can't properly evaluate the weight of the evidence. But of everything that I've read says that this is fairly common business practice in the state of New York, because businesses will, again, put their thumb on the scale. They'll inflate the, the value of their company um, in, in order to get a bank loan or in order to make their business more likely uh, to succeed if they were to merge with another business, if they're trying to come up with a partnership to entice another business to merge with them or to do business with them. And this is, and because of that, Usually, only if people get hurt does anybody come back and begin to question the, the, the policy. Is the policy, is it true that you shouldn't overvalue your assets when you're talking about trying to get a bank loan? Can that be fraud? Yes, of course. I mean, anytime you, you publicly tout something um, in business that is not true, that is, that, that, that's fraud. 
uh, that, by definition. But the question is, when are these cases litigated? When are lawsuits brought? Well, it's 99% of the time, it's when people have been hurt. And that's why the defense brought all these witnesses in from a lot of these transactions to say, look, we believe the information. We don't believe there was fraud here. We didn't lose any money. Everybody made money. We knew going in what we were going in for, and the judge ignored all that. So, of course, this ruling is going to be is going to go through the appellate process uh, because the main thing is that if I mean if if Trump loses his ability to do business in New York, that's that could be a devastating blow to the Trump organization. Trump's lawyers in arguments last week asked the judge to throw out the entire case. He said that they said that the valuations were highly subjective, and most of them are, and that disagreements about valuations didn't constitute fraud. Trump and his business didn't mislead banks or insurers, Trump's lawyer said, adding that such firms typically do their own due diligence before approving transactions. Now, that's another thing. What, what about the responsibility of the banks and the insurance companies and, and the, the businesses that decide to do partnerships? You, are, are they not going to look at this thing six ways from Sunday? In other words, they're going to they're gonna evaluate it because it's their money that's at stake. And if they evaluate it, come to the conclusion that everything's okay, they decide to invest, to lend the money, and then they end up making money, where is the fraud? I mean, it seems to me that if even though the statements may be exaggerated, you in order for fraud to be proven, you would have to demonstrate that as a result, somebody got hurt. And if everybody's running around saying, hey, this was a great deal. We all made money. We're happy. What are you doing going after this guy? And of course, we know what they're doing going after this guy. It's because of who he is. Um, they don't want him to be president again. Uh, they, you know, uh, the progressives are are bent on going against Trump. To me, that's one of the issues that would be on the table if Trump is the Republican nominee, and if somehow Biden survives. I still don't think he's going to be the candidate. There are more and more public calls from prominent Democrats now that are saying that Biden needs to step aside. I think the Democrat Party they they have the ability. Uh, to replace Biden, uh, I mean, we, we saw this in 2020 when, or, or the lead up to the Democrat Party going up to the presidential election of 2020, Bernie Sanders was about to mop the floor with everybody on the Democrat side and become the Democrat nominee, and the Democrat Party stepped in and basically kept Bernie Sanders from getting the nomination and making sure that uh, Biden got the nomination. Same thing was true. Bernie was going to take out Hillary Clinton, and the Democrat Party made sure that didn't happen. So it's not like the Democrats don't know how to replace Biden on the ballot. They do. The question is, will they? And I think if the panic continues to rise, I mean, this Washington uh, Post, ABC News poll, forget the fact that they tried to undermine their own poll and call it an outlier. Even if that's true, you're talking about a nine-point lead for President Trump in the general election at this point before we were even into a single primary, and we're talking about that kind of a lead against a sitting president. And when you look at Biden's dis uh, 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 approval numbers, 
I mean, his, his approval rating is at 36, 37%, with over 50% disapproving. I mean, that is not a formula for a viable candidate to get elected president of the United States. And when you add to that all of the gaffes, all of the uh, of Biden's near falls, all of his falls, um, the mental and physical state of, of Joe Biden does not indicate that he ought to be anywhere near the office of president of the United States. And everybody can see that. That's a very public thing. It's not like that's taking place in a closet. You know, we don't have COVID this time. I really think there, there has been some attempt by the Biden administration. Now, I, don't, I, I don't think it's going to work, but they've tried to ramp up. They've tried to start the machine going to ramp up the idea of, of masking and, um, you know, all, all of the stuff that's associated with COVID, the shutdowns. And I, I think that, that there are those who think that if they can put Biden back in the basement during the campaign, that maybe the if Trump is the candidate, which is... I think they believe is that at least is their hope. Um, if Trump is the candidate, there'll be enough Democrats that come home. Right now, you've got Democrats that are turning against Biden. But if Trump is becomes the nominee and is on the other side, a lot of people are saying, "Well, this is going to make a difference. The the Democrats are going to come home and they're going to vote for Biden over Trump because of their hatred for Trump." So, um, I, will that happen? I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody knows. We don't know how these trials are going to turn out. We don't, but, but this is an indication that at least the, uh, the trial in New York where Trump is accused of using campaign money to pay off um, uh, a, a porn star, uh, to, keep her, to keep that from becoming a big campaign issue. I mean, if, if this judge is going to rule in this way, how in the world are you going to find jurors in the state of New York who have already formed concrete opinions over the years about Donald Trump, and a lot of them negative, how are you going to find a jury pool that's going to be anywhere near impartial? I mean, I, st I just don't, I don't see that. So I think all of this, it, it could cause, obviously, a lot of problems, not just for the Trump organization, but for Trump uh, personally. The New York civil suit came before the former president, 77 years old, was indicted, in four different criminal cases. Of course, we knew that. Uh, Trump said in his deposition about this case that the value of his properties have gone up over the years, which showed that they weren't previously falsely valued, according to the ruling. The former president also suggested his property's values couldn't be inflated because he could find a buyer from Saudi Arabia to pay any price he suggests. So, in other words, you know, I can see how... Uh, this judge would would look unfavorably on that. It's not about how much the properties have gained in value. It's about whether the companies were honest. The, the question of fraud is did they misrepresent themselves? But again, those property values have increased. And in most of the business world, this wouldn't even be a, an issue. Uh, the fact that this is uh, that that some type of inflation of the value of the company would be on the table. Um, also, the this this was kind of weird. Some of Trump's lawyers were sanctioned by the judge because the judge said that they were entering into frivolous, um, bringing frivolous law claims before him, and they he I think he fined them like seventy five hundred dollars each. Some of the attorneys that were making the argument. 
So not only did he rule against Trump, but he ruled against some of the law, some of the arguments that the lawyers were making, say that they were saying that they were frivolous enough that they should be sanctioned. So and and be fined seventy five hundred dollars. So this is New York, and I don't know that we should expect anything different. But I think of all the things that that Trump is facing right now, this case could be one of the most substantial because of the danger to the Trump organization. I mean, if he loses his um, his wealth, if he loses his ability to do business in New York, which is where he's pretty much his business organization is, that's their home. Um, I, I Look, I'm not a business guru. I, I don't know how this would work out, how Trump would be able to overcome this or the organization would be able to be able to overcome it. But... Um, I, I know that this would be a major blow. All right, we're waiting right now for Catherine Barnhill. She's um, one of the pregnancy counselors at Lifeline Children's Services, and that's a national, it's the largest evangelical adoption agency in the country. Uh, they do some amazing work. They work with foster children. They work with adoption parents, foster families. They offer services to foster families, adoption families, uh, they placed numerous children in homes across the country, and Catherine Barnhill is actually located right here in South Carolina, and we're expecting her to call in here just any minute. Uh, but as we're waiting on her, we'll go ahead and move to another story that I wanted to get to today. You know, every now and then, we need a positive story. As as believers, we just, <laughs> you know, you, you look at the news, you look at the culture, uh, Christianity, and no question, is under attack. I mean, it just it just is. Um, and there are those in our culture who believe that as Christians, if we stand up to protect our rights in the in the culture, that we're somehow engaged in Christian nationalism. And that that's that's nothing of the kind. Look, we as citizens, um, we have the right as believers, to stand for what we believe are our rights in the public arena. All right, Catherine is calling me, so I'm going to go ahead and grab her right now and get her on the phone this morning. Good morning, Catherine Barnhill. How are you? Catherine, are you there? Yes. Okay. Good morning. You. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for calling in uh, to the show this morning. I'm My name's Tony Beam, and this is Truth and Politics and Culture, and um, I'm talking with Catherine Barnhill, who is a pregnancy counselor with Lifelines Children's Services. But I understand you're located right here in South Carolina. Is that right? I am. My office is in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and my territory is I'm from Georgetown uh, through Florence. Tell us a little bit about Lifeline Children's Services. Just it, it's a national organization, and that I know they're involved in foster helping foster families, adoption families. Tell us about all the services they offer. Yeah, so Lifeline is the largest evangelical Christian adoption agency in the United States. We're operating domestically and um, internationally. Adoption is we see as a part of God's divine work and redemption purpose and is a right answer for many vulnerable children. Um, and so we offer that, but we also know that there are 153 million orphans and vulnerable children throughout the world that will never be adopted, like 0.5% of them will be adopted. So Lifeline has created social services um, 
And it's really to equip the church. So we have programs called Families Count, which is court-appointed parenting classes um, to um, foster care in some of our areas to a lot of support services for foster parents as well. Um, CEUs, um, continuing education units is that all foster parents are required um, to have. And then we just have all sorts of parenting resources um, for foster parents, for adoptive parents. And so that's kind of like an overview of Lifeline. But we're right. here to equip the church to reach um, the vulnerable population. Now, I notice you have, uh, I'm looking at the website, and I notice it says Global Orphan Care. So that's, yes. that is beyond helping orphans be adopted and beyond helping them find foster parents. You're also um, giving money, have a programs to make the life of orphans wherever they are better by helping them. Is that right? Right. So we at Lifeline take a holistic care for children in their physical, emotional, spiritual, and social needs. And so we do a lot of partnering with churches and um, in the different countries to help them provide, like one of the other things is we provide um, like skilled classes for um, for the children that will be aging out of the system, right. for them to have life skills, to them to be able to find employment and to find resources. And so we partner with people in the different countries to do this. And again, along with our mission is working to equip the church to do these things. Now, how do you partner with churches? Talk a little bit about that, because in other words, let, let's just, let me give you a, an example. Um, I'm, okay. the, I'm the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. So if, if I wanted to suggest to the church that they partner with Lifeline Children's Services, what would that look like? So it looks like basically looking at our programs it's us talking to you like where's the heart of your church like we're all called as the big c church we call the body of christ the big c church james 1 27 tells us that we are to take care of the widows and the orphans widows are easier to take care of so to speak because they're in our churches and we see them but orphans we don't typically you know they're a part of our communities we're we are um you know, talking with them where we just don't realize that the need is in our community. So we find out where where your church's heartbeat is. Is it for your local foster care program? Right. Do you have families in your church that are fostering? Or um, what, what does that look like for your church to find out, to love on the Department of Social Services, um, to like take them lunch? to just care for the workers that are in the field working in the foster care, just loving them because they have a hard, hard job. Yes. And it's also, you know, equipping the families in your church that are foster parents. It's also, um, we can come into the church and we have a program called Equip to Love, which helps train your like Sunday school teachers, your volunteers in your church, how to handle and um, to love and to work with children that come from trauma um, and just ways to creatively resource your workers, how to, um, you know, help a child to be able to um to integrate into church, to right. be able to be a part of that. Well, you know, and so there's that, there's all sorts of ways. 
You know, this is, this is an amazing ministry when you start to think about, um, you know, we, we live in a culture that is very frayed. It's, um, uh, there, there are so many problems, and a lot of the problems that we see in our culture are coming from the problem of broken families, uh, where we don't have yes. strong family units uh, that kind of become the cohesive bond to hold the culture together. And so you, this is really a ministry to help churches lean in. I guarantee yes. every church um, that would, would hear this, or in every church really, um, has in their community and probably uh, very definitely attending worship services families or oh, yeah. fragmented families that could use ministry directly, and you help them know how to do that is what I'm hearing. Right. Oh, yes. We equip, and I, as I heard you talk in one of the other programs we have, is called Families Count. Right. So a lot of times when children are removed from the home or um, in danger of being removed from the home, the families are required to um, take court-appointed parenting classes. Well, Lifeline has established a great program called Families Count. It's been used in the Charleston area in South Carolina for years. And DSS has seen and the court system has seen the difference when a family comes through Families Count because it is holistic. It's the gospel. It's who you are in Christ. It's biblical parenting. And it's the church coming alongside of these broken families and modeling the family and and mentoring them. And right, the, right. the results of that, because brokenness really cannot be restored apart from Christ. Amen. You and know, it, I mean, and it can't be restored apart from relationships. Uh, we, exactly. The church has to reach out and build the relationships with these broken families and people from broken families in order for right. the gospel to be shared, but also for the, the love of Christ to be demonstrated in a way that encourages them and helps them to fit in to society. So uh, it's, it's, a wonderful, exactly. it's a wonderful thing. Now, you may or may not know about this, but I noticed that, uh, according to the website, that you partner with Send Relief. And of course, that's part of the International Mission Board yes. and the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. So what is the nature of that partnership with them? I really can't speak to that yeah, um, right. personal okay. knowledge I, right. because I'm boots on the ground right now. I just know that um, we have a great partnership with well, them, they're, and they're, it's because I mean, we're gospel-centered. Right, and and obviously NAM and the IMB, um, you know, has ministries all over North America and all around the world through the International Mission Board, and I'm sure that there are opportunities for Lifeline to go into areas where the IMB and NAM are established and work with those missionaries and those churches and those church startups. So I, I'm guessing that it's, exactly. a res, it's a resource for send relief, which is a great thing. Listen, Catherine, I you, believe so. you, you sound very uh, passionate about all this. And most people that get passionate about something are coming from an experience that's related to what they're passionate about. Uh, how, how did you get into Lifeline, and what is it about your personal experience that made you passionate about it? Okay, I would love to share that. I want to say this real quick. As far as, because this is my passion, I do feel like with Lifeline, I carry this beautiful resource chest for um, churches to partner. Right. And like we talked about, going 
back to, you know, what the heartbeat of the church is and how we can resource your church. Like we, I just feel like I carry this gift and would love to sit down with pastors and Lifeline would love to say, here is the way to do it. And it just is so neat to watch God empower um, his people to step Amen. into those broken places. Absolutely. And so my passion comes from um, being, I was adopted at a young age. My birth mother um, had actually gone to have an abortion and because it wasn't legal and dirty, she left and decided that adoption would be the best thing. And so she made that adoption plan and placed me for adoption uh, many years ago, 57 years ago. And adoptions changed a lot. Um, in I love the progression of adoption and how holistically and the openness. But back in those days, I pretty much... Um, just grew up knowing I was adopted and that my mother, birth mother had made that choice for me. And so it was neat to meet her um, 28 years later after my birth. But I just want to go back. When I graduated from college, I was very passionate about pro-life and the option of adoption because it saved my life. And I realized that there's so many women that just need to know that there are options. And so I started working with an agency right out of college, started as a student volunteer and they hired me and sent me to Myrtle Beach to open an office 30 something years ago. Wow. And I've just watched how God has used my story um, to be able to, um, to help women that are in traumatic and unplanned pregnancies that they can see what seems to be um, the worst thing, how God can make it one of the best things in you their know, lives. You know, you and I have one thing in common. Um, I was not adopted. My mom chose to, to have me. But th the thing we have in common is that the law made a difference at the point oh, where yeah. your mom was making a decision and my mom was making a decision. I came along late mm -hmm. in my, it was actually my mom's second marriage. Her first husband had passed away. And they were in their 40s, and she became pregnant, and she was distraught. I mean, in 1957, there weren't a lot of women in their 40s that were still having mm -hmm. babies. And, and she told me one time in a kind of a vulnerable moment, she said, if abortion had been legal in 1957, you, you probably wouldn't be here because I was, uh, you know, uncomfortable and a, a little bit afraid about it. And yet, after mm -hmm. I was born... I mean, she was one, I mean, the, she put it this way. I cried for nine months when I found out I was pregnant. And then I cried for nine months after you were born because I couldn't believe that mm -hmm. I would not want you. And see, the mm -hmm. message the message I want people to hear from that and from what your testimony is, in a moment of crisis, it's mm -hmm. easy for people to look and say, okay, this is my only option, especially when the culture is telling them that. But Oh, yeah. After that moment of crisis passes and the realization of life and what it means to have a child and to bring life mm -hmm. into this world so overwhelms any of the crisis moments that you, you just don't find women who are, you know, they, they never regret not having an abortion. I mean, I, the media tries to right. portray that sometimes, I think. But it, it's, it, it's not true. Women discover that giving life is the blessing that God intended for it to be. And then you come along in this space 
and allow these children that whose mothers choose life to be able to find uh, if you know another family uh, to find foster right. care and to get the resources they need to be successful. It's it's a wonderful ministry. So you you were talking well, about it you, is. Go ahead, go ahead. Let me let you respond let to me, all that. I really want to respond to the um, the regret part. So I've been doing this about 17 years I've been working with women in unplanned, unexpected pregnancies. And I can tell you in 17 years, I'm, like you said, I did not, I've not had one mother regret carrying her baby to term. Right. Um, recently I had a client who was sharing um, one of her friends, she placed my client, placed for adoption, and her friend had said, you're going to regret that. And she said, I had an abortion and I regretted it. And my client was like, no, I don't. It's very different. I'll get to see my son. I'll get to know, you know, I'll get to watch him grow up and see what he becomes. It's not the same. And I thought it was very powerful for a client herself to share with her friend, it is not the same. You cannot compare adoption to abortion. It is not the same. And the other thing that I think is so important in for women is that the realization of as they're in the, that choice-making time, whether they're going to carry their baby to term, they can choose to parent and decide to parent and it doesn't work out. Like it, they realize that it would be best for their child to be placed with a family. And they can do that. Right. They can choose adoption and go through, have the baby. And I love Lifeline's birth parent ministry. The family knows until the until that birth mom signs on the dotted line that they are taking a risk. But I watch these families being willing to walk through that. And a girl may birth the baby and decide, I, I can't place for adoption. It, I want to parent. And she can change her mind as long as she hasn't signed relinquishments. And so... With abortion, there is no time to change your mind. Once it's done, it's done. It's done. That's but right. with the planning of adoption or the planning of parenting, um, can change. You know, I think, and and I know we're we're running out of time here. I did, I don't want to extend your time, but um, you know, I, I I think one of the ways since Roe versus Wade has been overturned, and state by state, we're making decisions about abortion and life. And we've seen mm -hmm. votes go against uh, pro-life positions in states like Kentucky and Kansas and Ohio and Michigan. And we've been, I think it's been a discouragement for the pro-life community. But I think what it means for us in the pro-life community, and I wrote about this in a column in the Baptist Courier, we've got to become better ambassadors for life. You know, I think yes. your testimony, you, the way you the, the, the space that you're in in helping families and orphans and foster families, uh, all of that gives us the opportunity to talk about the comparison between life and the opportunities that grow from that and the fact that, as you said, when abortion happens, that's it. It's final. It's over. And mm -hmm. life is snuffed out and no opportunities mm -hmm. are left. And we need, to, we need to make that argument winsomely, uh, mm -hmm. but firmly to the culture to try to help people see why life is important. But anyway, Catherine, listen, thank you uh, for being on the program today. You 
Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Let people know how they can get in touch with you in South Carolina if they would like to get their churches involved or if they'd like to get involved in the program. Right. The best way to get in touch with us is to, online, just like you went on the website right. at lifelinechild.org. Yeah. And it's lifelinechild.org, and they can put South Carolina in. But I just want to share in closing, I am very thankful that God's raised up Lifeline in South Carolina and that we can work with churches. And we talked about real quick the culture of life and that if each one of us would just play our role as far as being willing to speak life and to just share encouragement that there are resources and that you don't have to do this alone and for the church to rise up and just to love those in their community, our lives are going to be changed and the culture is going to change to a culture of life. Exactly. And that's what it's about. If God creates life, there's purpose. Catherine Barnhill, Lifeline Children's Services. She is in Myrtle Beach, and I really appreciate your time today, Catherine. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, great interview. I tell you, I appreciate um, women like Catherine who are on the front lines and all of this. You talk about the positive side. Everybody talks, I hear this talk all the time about why are you pro-lifers so negative? And I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, how can it be negative to be in favor of life? I mean, if you're pro-abortion, that's a negative. You're talking about the taking of human life created in the image of God. Here are here's women like Catherine are all over the place. I mean, they're all over the country. They're all over the world working in spaces to help people make the decision for life and then being there with the follow-up. Another thing that happens with the pro-life community, you hear a lot of people say, well, you, you, you pro-lifers, you don't care anything about the baby after it's born. Really? Well, tell that to Lifeline. Tell that to these orphans, over 5,000 of them, that have received help and services from Lifeline around the world. Uh, tell that to the thousands of families that have been able to adopt children, uh, that have been able to take children into their home through foster care. This is making a difference in the life of children now. Yes, we want to protect life in the womb because life is sacred. It has intrinsic worth. It's made in the image of God. But at the same time, we're also working with life once children are born to meet their needs, to encourage them, uh, to find families for them. Um, I, I just, I, I do not understand. I have never understood the argument that abortion is the right answer when there are so many people who would adopt, be a foster parent, that would take care of the needs, bring the child into the world. And I, you know, again, I was looking at a survey the other day, women saying that it's my body, my choice. Somebody responded that way um, in a survey about why progressives are pro-abortion. Uh, my body, my choice. And, you know, it's not your choice because it's not ultimately your body. A baby is not an appendage. It's not like an appendix. It's not a part of your body that you can simply cut off and say that was something in my body, a body part that I don't want. A baby is a person. It is another, it's their body that's at stake. It's their life that's at stake. Once you make the decision to make it possible for a baby to be born, to become pregnant, and you may say, well, I didn't make that decision. It was, it was an accident. Well, 
the way that you got pregnant was somewhere along the way there was a decision made, um, and, and and except for the exceptions of rape or incest, and and so there's a responsibility that comes with that that should be leaning toward life and not toward our culture of death that we have in this country, which is really unfortunate. All right, um, let me get back to the story here. I was starting to tell you about an NFL legend getting baptized. Let me tell you that it's Jim Kelly. Now, those of you who follow Jim Kelly, you know he played in four Super Bowls with the Buffalo Bills. He's in the Football Hall of Fame. He's now 63 years old. They never He never won a Super Bowl, but he played in four. And he has recently, he's had a lot of health problems. Uh, he's had uh, cancer of the jaw. That's been a uh, a real battle for him health-wise, but so far he's been able to, um, the, the cancer's been in remission and he's been under treatment. And just recently he gave his life to Christ and he was baptized in a swimming pool. Uh, and he said, quote, I'm not a man of many words and I don't speak Christianese. And you know, uh, the good news is, uh, Jim, nobody has to speak Christianese. You just have, you have to be able to speak about what Christ has done for you and to make it personal. He said, all I know is that God changed my life. After Hunter, my son, went to heaven, he lost his son. His son was eight years old and died of a, uh, some type of something called crab disease, which is a rare genetic condition. But he said, after that, after Hunter went to heaven, I was so lost and angry at God, but God loved me anyway, and he never gave up on me. You know, that <laughs> that kind of gets to me because there's so many people that need to hear that today, that God, if you're angry about life circumstances, if something has happened in your life that you feel is ultimately unfair, know this, you have a heavenly father who loves you and will never give up, give up on you. And your, your, your life will be made immeasurably better on this side of eternity, no matter what your circumstances are, if you submit and surrender your life to God through Jesus Christ, just like Jim Kelly did. Um, and, and of course, Jim's wife has been talking about this as well. Um, in an Instagram post, Kelly Stretwell, this is Jim Kelly, he said, God helped me humble myself and to seek him for help. Becoming a Christian is the best decision I've made in my life. I wish it have, I would have come to him sooner, but his timing is perfect. Um, in his post, Kelly thanked his friends and his men's fellowship group for helping him to be a better man. He also expressed gratitude to his wife, Jill, for never abandoning him and encouraging him in his faith, and thanked his two daughters for helping him be a better dad. Man, this is just good stuff. Listen, Jesus Christ has the power to change a life. He's changed Jim Kelly's life. Jim Kelly had everything. I mean, he was a sports superstar in the most popular sport in the country, um, and a Hall of Famer in the NFL. All of the accolades of his chosen profession have come his way. I mean, he, he didn't win a Super Bowl, but playing in four and setting a lot of records as a quarterback of the Buffalo Bills – um, he has just, I mean, his life was an image of what a lot of people think would be a successful life. And yet now he says that what really made my life purposeful is that I gave my life to Jesus Christ 
And that, that makes me want to celebrate because, I mean, it's eternity in heaven, but it's also the presence and power of God to live life to the full on this side of eternity. All right, the only other story I had in, uh, in the queue today was that a clear majority of Democrats want free speech restrictions. You know, we hear this sometimes that it's not all Democrats, and I, and I would say this as, as well, it's not all Democrats that want to restrict free speech, but a lot of Democrats, according to a new poll that is out this week, it says that they would like for free, free speech to be restricted. And so they're following along with their leadership. This is not just a matter of those who are leading in the Democrat Party wanting to shut down free speech. On Friday, Real, Real Clear Opinion Research released the results of a survey so showing that a, just a slim majority of Democrats, 53%, say that speech should be legal under any circumstances, with 47% saying it should be legal only under certain circumstances. Now, unfortunately, those certain circumstances are if you agree with a progressive mindset, then you're free to say whatever you want. But if you espouse Christian beliefs, conservative beliefs, if you espouse patriotic beliefs or belief that runs in any way counter to the progressive narrative or mindset, then they think it's okay for your speech to be curtailed while their speech is allowed. Um, now, almost three-quarters of Republicans b- believe that free speech should be available in every circumstance, 74%. Regarding freedom in general, almost one-third of Democrats, 34%, said that Americans have too much freedom compared to just 14.6% of Republicans that say that. When it comes to government censorship, three out of four Democrats said that the government should, in fact, restrict what they define as hateful social media posts, with about half of Republicans say that they would support such censorship. Now, what's the key word here? The key word is hateful. And so when you're filling out a survey, you know, if you're doing it quickly, and and I'm convinced that a lot of people just don't put a lot of thought in what they're doing as they're filling out these surveys or somebody calls them and they're answering questions, they hear the word hateful and they think, well, I'm against hate. I don't want anybody to be hateful. I don't think that helps our culture. It doesn't help our country. Uh, why would I want that? So yeah, you can. If, if it's hateful, then the government should be able to kick it off social media without stopping to think above the surface that hate is defined by whoever has the ability to do the censorship. The government can decide that reading the Bible is hateful and then censor it on social media. Now, they can't get by with it in this country right now because we happen to have a Supreme Court that is ruling in favor of religious liberty, the First Amendment, free speech, and the freedom of religion to leave out your live out your deeply held religious beliefs in the public arena. But imagine that politically that changes. And, and so then whoever has the levers of power get to describe what hate is. And they expand that from what, I mean, we would, and everybody would know that uh, abusing a child is hateful. Uh, saying things about children 
that is is abusive, uh, and I'm just trying to come up with an example here that just about everybody would get on board with. We know that's hate, but that's not where it stops. Hate becomes, if you're a Christian, upholding biblical sexual ethics. Hate becomes, if you're a conservative, believing, for example, in free speech and pushing back against those who would want to silence people they disagree with. And so this idea, the reason I'm talking about this today, you know, it, it is, as we are preparing for the 2024 primary season, we're going to elect not only a president, but we're going to elect a third of the Senate. We're going to elect the entire House of Representatives. And all of this is going to go toward the worldview and philosophical underpinning of what the government is going to do once we put it in place because it's made up of we the people. And if you've got a lot of people out there, and particularly the Democrat Party, which is what this um, real clear politics survey reveals, that don't believe in free speech, if progressive Democrats get the levers of power, they're going to curtail free speech based on what their definition of hate is. And what we need are people that understand that speech is one of our most cherished rights. Our ability to speak our mind along with our ability to worship according to what we believe about God is, is it's our cherished rights in America. Those are fundamental freedoms. And unfortunately right now, they're under attack. We need to know it, and we need to make our decisions about our leadership based on that. All right. Thanks for listening today. Appreciate it. It's been a great show. Hope you've enjoyed it live. Uh, don't forget, you can download the show soon. It should be available, oh, in about an hour or so. Um, got the wrong theme coming up here. That was We were about to crank it up to, again, and it's not time to crank it up. It's time to remember at the end of the program today that God is in control. Twilight Paris helps us remember that every now and then. Hope you have a great day. Hope you enjoy the rest of your day. And I hope you'll join me again in the morning at 7.30 live on Facebook for Truth and Politics and Culture. And don't forget to download the podcast later today. God bless you.